On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking LRT. Why are we talking LRT again? Because Ottawa is building an LRT, and right now they are having problems. Mainly, the new part of the LRT they want to build, well, suddenly they're discovering it is going to cost way more than they had expected. Apparently, costs go up. What does this mean for Hamilton? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're also chatting about Tim Hortons. You know, that little store, that little company that started in Hamilton, they're opening 1,500 of them in China. Can this work? Oh, and one more thing about Hamilton. Ottawa, the Ottawa Senators, back to Ottawa for a moment, the Ottawa Senators, they're a disaster right now. Everybody wants to leave. Nobody wants to play there. This was the franchise, remember, that once upon a time was supposed to come here to Hamilton. Would things have been different if that had happened? Would Hamilton be doing a better job with an NHL team than Ottawa is if it had come here? We're talking about it right now. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Now, some of you are going to know that in Waterloo, Kitchener-Waterloo, they are in the middle, the very end stages actually, of an LRT construction project. And also in Ottawa, the LRT phase there, their first construction project with LRT is coming to an end, allegedly. Uh, Ottawa's had some problems. Well, Waterloo's had some problems too. They've had a lot of delays on it. But Ottawa uh, is still waiting. They are about a year behind now, give or take, and they're expecting a third major delay coming up. That's not really, that's part of the story. But they are now at the point where they are considering adding phase two. I guess the the first phase went well enough, even with the delays that they're considering what to do with phase two of their LRT. However, it is that second part of this story that has created some gasps in the capital region over the last week, because the $3.4 billion price tag for phase two of the LRT has suddenly jumped to $4.66 billion. In other words, their latest part of this has shot up from expectations by nearly 50%, more than what they thought. Uh, now, to be fair, theirs, their project is going to be longer than the one in Hamilton is going to be, and it has more stations and there's more bells and whistles along with it. Still, this is concerning, especially when the report that they are dealing with that came this week says that the biggest additional reason for the increased cost is not the extra length or distance they've put on it, it is contractors saying they are facing higher labor and equipment costs to the tune of $500 million more. Now, again, even if we whittle down on a scale thing, because theirs is longer than ours, that would be the equivalent of Hamilton having our costs going up by $125 million dollars. Brad Clark is counselor for Ward 9. Uh, he joins us now. Brad, how are you tonight? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm good. This uh, When I saw these stories today, and I've been reading a bunch of them, it sounds almost word for word exactly what you were talking about in Council 2, 3, I don't know how many weeks ago it was now when you brought forward the question for clarification because of things like inflation and unexpected costs. Uh, this is exactly what can happen. You can have contingency costs that were unanticipated. You can have inflation costs, labor costs. Um, and at the end of the day, if you have an agreement uh, with a spe- specified amount of money, $1 billion, uh, the question really becomes what happens if we exceed that? And, and that's what we need answers to. 
And here's the thing is some people who are listening are going to say, oh, you know what? You're bashing LRT. I don't think it's bashing LRT. Whether you're on board with LRT or not, when you see what's happening in Ottawa and you start to see these numbers, I think a realistic person who is not blinded necessarily by their vision, but are willing to be reasonable would say, this is a concerning situation. What we see there, if it is transferable to Hamilton, it's concerning. Well, and and I think it is transferable. I think the concern is um, that any large capital infrastructure project runs this risk, whether or not it's a highway, a subway, LRT, whatever the project is, it runs this risk. And when you look at Ottawa, the original goal, the original target was $1.9 billion. And the bids for it came in at $2.5 billion, and they've gone up another billion dollars. So, um, that's just in a very short time frame um, when they actually start crunching real numbers and, and coming forth with the costs. Um, and, and the province right now in Ottawa has not stepped up and said that they're actually going to cover their share of it yet. They're, that's still in limbo. It, uh, has this, have these discussions with what happened? Now, I know Ottawa is a newer situation. I mean, they've had the delays, but these numbers coming up, these big numbers. But has Ottawa or what's happened in Kitchener, have these been raised in discussions among council, around the council table uh, when it talks about concerns and what could happen? Has, has this been something? Have we been looking at these other examples? Around the council table, um, I would say in the last um, term of council, yes, it was raised. Um, I think in this term of council, um, what we've specifically asked for is clarification as to who's going to pay if there's an acceleration. So let's look at the Hamilton situation. So you have inflation numbers, you have contingency costs that can be anywhere from 10 to 15 percent of the project. So those, that's an additional cost. Uh, but then we still are supposed to be looking at upgrades of sewer systems and pipes under the ground. So Metrolinks in the province has said they will pay like for like for water and sewer pipe replacement. So if your sewer pipe is a certain uh, diameter, you replace it with the exact same pipe, and that will be covered by, by the government of Ontario. If you upgrade it because you want to intensify the development down King Street, then that's the cost on the city. We don't know those costs yet. But that's a cost that the city will have to to bear. It is. Uh, we're going to do more on this because, as I say, this story from Ottawa to me was stunning when I saw this today because it was it, it was sobering. Maybe is a different word, just because of the possibilities of how it could or could not be transferable. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Brad Clark, Ward Nine Councillor, about Ottawa's LRT, and the reason we're talking about Ottawa's LRT is because the city of Ottawa has had some delays with their LRT construction. Now they're looking at phase two and the costs are coming in massively higher than they had first anticipated to the extent of like 50% higher. Uh, And Brad, one of the ways that they are now talking in Ottawa about how they would deal with this if they're going to go ahead with their LRT is A, they're hoping, hoping that the province and federal government are going to cover the whole thing, but I don't think they're too confident on that. But the other part then they're talking about is uh, a lot of borrowing, massive borrowing, um, and then subsequent tax increases to try and deal with this. How do you think that would play in Hamilton? I don't think it would play well at all in Hamilton. So in Ottawa, what the situation is, it's a three-way split. $1.2 billion was promised from the feds and that they've, they've agreed to that. They've confirmed that. $1.2 billion came from the province. The previous government made that commitment. 
Uh, the current government made the commitment during the election, but they have not confirmed that they're willing to, to pay that. Uh, it's pretty clear that the feds in the province are not willing to spend more than the $1.2 billion, which leaves Ottawa having to borrow $700 million over 30 years uh, and have the taxpayers pay for it. And, and so where you reading this story and trying to understand this, and you would understand this better, uh, anyone who's in construction probably understands this, um, they are going to borrow so much, in fact, to do this, that they are going to max out in their ability to borrow, pretty much, uh, unless the tax increases are just monumental, and I don't think anyone wants to go down that road. So in other words, what they're going to face now is that their ability to borrow will be gone, so other capital investments or other things that they will have to do in the city will have to be put off. They can't afford to build it. So essentially, all their eggs are going into one basket, into this LRT. Well, they will will likely hit their debt ceiling as a municipality. Um, your debt ceiling is really how much debt you can pay for out of your cash on a, on an ongoing basis, much like a business. Um, but with a municipality, you really can't raise the taxes to the point where people can no longer afford to pay their taxes. So they're really in a in, in a bit of a box here. Um, and and the fear that that many people have is that. When you're looking at these large capital projects and you talk about, you know, in this case, Hamilton's LRT, the $1 billion was a politically generated number. It was never based on any actual calculation. It was just, here's the billion dollars. That's what we're promising. And now we're getting to the point where we're going to actually have real numbers and we need to understand what happens if it exceeds that billion, who's going to pay? And and I believe the province is making it very clear that they're not going to pay any more than a billion dollars. Well, if they're saying that in Ottawa... Uh, as much as we might like to believe that that would be different in Hamilton, I, I'm i having a hard time understanding why Hamilton would be special over Ottawa. And I mean, I, I live here, I love the place, but I'm not sure that when it comes time for the folks who handle the money at Queen's Park, that they're going to see Hamilton as that much different from the capital. Yeah, and I, I think that the councillors and the leaders in the community simply need to see it in writing from the Minister of Transportation that very clearly it's a billion dollars, anything over and above that, it's the municipal tax base that we'll be paying for it. And then if we find out that it does exceed the billion dollars, we'll have to make some decisions. And I know that that was put forward. Where does that stand right now? Are we, We're just waiting uh, on that, but do we have a time frame for when we hope or expect or know we'll hear from them? I expect it will be relatively quickly. I heard that Donna Skelly was interviewed again by the media not too long ago, and she has reiterated that the government policy is they're only paying the billion dollars. So now we just need to get it in writing from the minister. Ward 9 Councillor Brad Clark, appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Have a great night. Uh, it, look, it, I know that there are people listening right now who are supporters of LRT, and I that's fine. And they will say... This is negativity. This is more negativity towards the LRT. I disagree with that because I don't feel we're being negative towards the project. I really don't. I think that if you are going to embark on a project of this scale, of this magnitude in the city with this many implications, you would be ridiculous not to be looking around and seeing what's happening other places. And I don't think that's being negative. I think that's being practical. I think that's being responsible. And if Ottawa... Has put is putting forward bids now or seeking bids for people to do this job and it's coming in massively over the numbers that they had been told not that long ago. I think it's fantasy land to think that somehow the numbers are going to be exactly the same in Hamilton as they were five or six or seven years ago. 
I don't think that's realistic. And so if nothing else, before we get too far further down this path, at least we have to know. And that's why I think the, the note that council has asked for the in writing is really important. It's really important. Because I don't think that I, I agree with Councillor Clark. I don't think there's a stomach in this city for tax dollars in the amount of a hundred million or two hundred million or three hundred million or four hundred, but whatever the number would be. I don't know. We've heard everything. I don't think I don't know the stomach is there to add that onto the tax rolls. I don't, and I think it's not negative. I think it's responsible and realistic. Now, if you want to be negative, I will tell you one funny story from the Ottawa LRT. Funny, I suppose although not everyone's going to find the humor in this, um, they are presently testing their system, their soon-to-be operational system in Ottawa, uh, but they've discovered apparently one small problem. They had a snowstorm there the other day, and the um, the LRT trains couldn't run because they got stuck on the tracks. Because who would have thought there'd be snow in Ottawa? So one place, one car, for two days it was stuck between two stations until it could be towed back to the storage area. That's going to be a small problem if the trains can't run in the snow. There was another part, by the way, they tried to clear it with some equipment and they damaged the tracks. Again, we can laugh about this. We can say how ridiculous. If we're going to build one of these things, we have to use what we're seeing from other places and learn from it and say, look, if this is a problem, let's know what's going to cost and let's know how we don't make the same mistakes they are making. That's all. Because right now, Ottawa is in a mess. It sounds like you're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in my next guest. Uh, and I would normally give him a better introduction than this, but since he's just back from California where I don't know what would possess a man of his intellect to actually return here after being out there, we usually Marvin Ryder from the group school of business. We usually laud your intelligence today. I must question it. Well, I actually, it's the other way around. I wondered why I ever went there in the first place. I was in the middle of the California desert, and on three of seven days I was there, we got rain, so much rain, in fact, that one of the roads nearby had washed out. Uh, and cold temperatures, the highest it ever got when I was in the desert was 15 Celsius, which isn't very warm when you go for the desert. So I am glad to be back. I was kind of wasting my money down there. All right. Well, okay. I mean, I, I didn't know whether to feel bad for you or good for you, but you know what? Well, I guess I guess we're happy for you that you're back there. We're happy you're back, back to come on here. I'm um, back. Tim Hortons. Uh, during the yep. news, uh, people could have heard Rick Zamperin telling you about Tim Hortons, that they are opening now, are planning to open over the next decade, 1,500 locations in China. The Little Hamilton Coffee Shop is now opening 1,500 locations, they say, in China in 10 years. Is this a business plan that makes sense? Absolutely, for a couple of reasons. First, today they have roughly 4,600 locations in Canada, but the market here is so saturated, there's just no way they can sustain their past growth levels other than opening a coffee shop in in a bedroom near you. Other than getting down to that level, I think they've really exhausted this market. So for much of the last, I'll say, 10 years, the assumption was that the coffee shop would have to go to the United States, your next-door neighbor, 10 times the size of the market, but a difficult market to crack, no doubt about it. And then with the change of ownership, they suddenly started talking about different markets. They weren't talking about the United States. They got into England and Scotland and Ireland. They went to the Middle East. And then it was about a year and a half ago, they said that we'd like to explore going into China. And today they opened their very first store in Shanghai. 
as you correctly say, this is the first of what they hope to be 1,500, 1,500 over the next 10 years. You can then figure out the rate. That'd be opening one store about every two days in China. Now, China, from a population standpoint, 1.4 billion people, and at least with younger Chinese, an audience that is very Western in its influences. Uh, McDonald's is already there. Kentucky Fried Chicken is already Starbucks has been there for 25 years. And even though you think of China as a tea-consuming company, country, excuse me, uh, coffee has gone up in consumption. And I think, given its size, there certainly is room here. My only cautionary tale is the first one or two or five that you open, you'd better really knock it out of the park. You've got to do mm. a good job. If you stumble and create a bad impression, you may never get back on the high ground. You mentioned something a moment ago, though, that I found really interesting, and that was Tim Hortons has struggled in the American market, and part of it seems to be because if you want uh, a more expensive-ish brand of coffee, Starbucks seems to be your place. And in the States, if you want a little bit of a cheaper brand of coffee, uh, Dunkin' Donuts has the place that has sort of carved out the Tim Hortons area. Uh, In China... You've got Starbucks, as you say. You've got a million other things. Are they going to be able, are they too late to the dance, or are they going to be able to do better there than they did in the States at making, because I, I wouldn't think that China, when they think of the West, always thinks of Canada. They would think of the American companies first. Yeah, so again, let me pick a couple of things there. Dunkin' Donuts, by the way, is already in China as well, but in a small way. I think there's room. I think there's room. And certainly remember that in the last two decades, there have been a, a boatload hundreds, thousands of Chinese students who have come to Canada to study and then have gone back with very positive impressions of of Tim Hortons. Just to give you a sense, now this isn't China, this is India, but if you go to India, you could buy coffee today from Tim Hortons. Uh, a, a basically a look-alike brand really that stolen the yeah, Tim Hortons, not Hortons, Hortons, O T T H O T T E N S. Tim Hortons is already preparing the lawsuits, by the way, in India that they're infringing on copyright. But these students who've come here have taken that back. And Canada, and I know right at this moment the relations between China and Canada are a little testy, but in general, there's a lot of very warm feelings in the in China for Canada, maybe warmer than the United States. So if we can position this correctly, now to give you a sense of that, Scott, uh, Tim Hortons, and they've opened in Shanghai, offer you the to- donuts and the Timbits and the coffee. They offer you a broader selection of tea than they have here, but they've also come up with a few taste treats. Now, this first one I think you would like. It's a maple macchiato, a sort of a fancy coffee, and with the foam on the top, they use a little cinnamon, and they sprinkle a maple leaf on the top. Ooh, maple leaves, are very popular in China. But here's the other one, in a Timbit flavor that maybe won't warm your hearts. It's salted egg yolk. Mmm, a nice salted egg yolk Timbit, but they're trying to play into that market. So I expect a lot of experimentation in the first two or three that they open just to get the taste combinations right. You mentioned, though, that this is, Canada is tapped out as far as Tim Hortons. It's saturated. It's getting that way, yes. Does, and and India has the, 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 fake Tim Hortons, but is China the final frontier then? What, what do you do? You, you say they got to keep the market value going up and you have to keep the shareholders happy and all the rest. Where do you go after China if this works or is this it? 
Well, here's the good news. Going into China, there is lots and lots of room. If we have 4,600 for a country of 36 million people, you can do the math about how many you can have in China. You could have 46,000, and that would make the shareholders really happy. 15, frankly, is just scratching the surface. They've opened in Shanghai to give you a sense of Shanghai as a market. The entire population of Shanghai is more than the population of Ontario. So there's, there's possibilities there. There's possibilities. And if we add in then India as another potential market, when it was just the little store that could out of Oakville, started in Hamilton but then had office in Oakville, you know, it wasn't clear they were going to have the resources because you need to put some money into this. These first stores, much like when McDonald's first went to China or India, you didn't actually expect the first stores to make you much money. They were there to help build awareness. It was when you'd get a bigger volume, that's when you'd start making the money. So these are experimental. But you need a company who's, who's behind you. And certainly with that change in ownership, we may not love 3G capital out of Brazil, but they have the kinds of pockets that if they want to get into this market, they could spend the kind of dollars required. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show chatting with Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business about Tim Horton's plan to put 1,500 Tim Horton's locations in China within 10 years. And Marvin, you... You mentioned a lot of stuff right off the top, and we're trying to work our way through this because uh, sure. there are everybody knows about what's going on with China right now, with the states and with Canada. Yep. There's disagreements. There's fights about tariffs, and there's fights about Huawei, and there's fights about all kinds of stuff. If a con- company, a reasonably large company, is going to try and do something like this, uh, do any of the North American governments have to ease off on anything for China, or could they possibly hurt this kind of venture if there is more disagreements going on? Well, I would, I would never tell the government to try to change its policy because of a private interest in, in this case, but certainly timing becomes important. Now, uh, we've covered this, we're covering this story, but there was another story last month of Canada Goose, the iconic coat company, opening its first flagship store in Beijing in, in the month of January. Uh, both of these were really the momentous Canadian events of, of Canadian companies getting into the Chinese market. But these events were actually supposed to happen in December of 2018. And amazingly, both of them ran into some last-minute construction delays that, that just delayed the opening for a little while, rather than trying to open up in the middle of that whole Madame Mung uh, challenge that mm. we had. Remember the woman who was yes. uh, a Huawei official who was arrested and what have you. Um, so both of them have tried to open up between the period that she was arrested and next Wednesday when her extradition hearing begins in Vancouver. Now you'll remember where we stand at the moment. She's uh, uh, has um, uh, what word am I looking here for? She got not parole, but she got uh, uh, bond. She has a bail and she's out on bail. She's living in her Vancouver residence. The hearing begins next week and who knows how that's going to go. I would tell you that if the court rules that the United States does not have a prima facie case to extradite her, uh, China will be so happy, and it will be great days for Canadian companies doing business in China. If, on the other hand, the court says, yeah, you know, the United States, you make a really good case, we're going to send her on to you, and she'll face trial there, expect again a tough time. But these companies are not looking just for today or tomorrow or next month. They have to look over a 10-, 20-year horizon. Sooner or later, they were going to have to get in there. So take a moment between the storms, kind of like us between the ice storms and the snow storms. Get in there, get the toehold, start to get it right. I can just tell you, generally speaking, China still loves Canada and still likes what we're doing, even if at the moment the government's a little miffed. I still think in the long run this is the right place to be. 
Very quickly, I want to change tack a little bit um, to another story, another business story that was in the news uh, yesterday. And it's a story that says that bankruptcies are quite considerably on the rise in Canada. Individual bankruptcies, not business bankruptcies. Um, people are citing costs of living, increased taxes, interest rates going up, and all at the same time that incomes are not really going up. When you put all those pieces together, Marvin, how do you get around that? How do you prevent this? It sounds like it's a, a recipe for an awful lot of people to face this problem. Well, I'm going to say yes and no. So the numbers are still quite low, Scott. If I look at percentage of the population, in a typical year, roughly one-third of 1% of the population finds itself in some kind of financial trouble. And a sub-part of that story that didn't get a lot of publicity was they were really talking about people who were facing financial problems, but 75% of them, rather than declaring bankruptcy, went and got what's called a consumer proposal. In a consumer proposal, you still admit you owe debt, but they're going to give you a different uh, interest rate and allow you some time to pay it off as you can avoid bankruptcy. So, you know, we have been warning people for the better part of a decade these low interest rates weren't going to stay. Don't stock up on debt. These numbers aren't going to stay down. Even though this year the uh, interest rates are going to grow at a slower pace, maybe just one or two increases this year, they are still are below historical levels. So, you know, you listen to me carefully. Take a look at your structure. And if you are right on the edge, you need to do something to restructure your finances because those interest rates are not going to go down. They're going to go up a little bit more. But the good news is it's still rather small. Now, the story is talking about absolute numbers. And so when your population is 36 million, yes, you're going to have more people facing these problems than when you have 26 million people. So the absolute numbers go up, but as a percentage, it's been pretty constant. So I'm not, I'm not overly concerned. We're not on the edge of an apocalypse here. We're not on the edge of a recession. It's just, listen to me carefully, these interest rates are not going to get better. If you are stretched right to the limit, take the opportunity now, before you get into trouble, to restructure so that you can avoid it when the rates are inevitably are going to go up. Because the number that really catches my attention is the total consumer debt that Canadians hold right now, yep. it says, is $1.834 trillion. That sounds yep. like an awful lot for a country our size. Sure does. It sure does. And in fact, when you then add in the provincial debts and the federal debts, we owe as much as our GDP in a year. So that, you know, that is a concern. Having said that to you, though, another part of the story that doesn't get a lot of attention, our net worth our assets minus our liabilities at the highest they've ever been. So the wealth of Canada is at a very high level, and, and if we leverage that with debt, it's no wonder our debt's at a relatively high level. So I'm not, I'm not happy about it. I wish more people would be more prudent in their use of debt. If you're going out to buy a home, don't become property rich but money poor. Find the right home for your dollars. But I can't stop people from doing this. The banks have taken their steps to try to rein this in a bit. Um, if, if this is what you want to do, you put yourself in a precarious situation, you may have to pay the piper. But I, I think on balance, I'm still very hopeful about our situation here. That is Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, just back from frigid California to much, much nicer Canada. Welcome yes, home. Yes, fortunately I'm between ice storms at the moment, so I'm feeling really good. <laughs> Appreciate the time, thanks. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some time ago, I don't know how long ago now, a year, year and a half, we used to have a guy who was on the board who was behind the glass pressing the buttons named Ben. And when he was here, we started something called Ben's Story of the Day. And then Ben left, 
and Will was in, and Lisa's been in, and Jacob's been in, and Luke has been in. They've all done their story of the day. But guess who's back on the board tonight? Ben is in. Ben, welcome home. I'm glad to be home. Well, it's since you're home, we got to bring back Ben's story of the day today. So here's how it works. I'm going to give Ben three stories from around the world that are unusual and using whatever criteria it is that he wishes, he chooses which one is Ben's story of the day. So we're going to start in England, where a British nudist group is putting together an attempt to break a Guinness Book of World Record by having more than 100 people ride a roller coaster while naked for over an hour. You have to ride for an hour. You got to be naked. You got to be on the coaster and you got to have over 100 people. British Naturism says it's hoping at least 103 people will participate in the March 2nd attempt to break the record for most naked riders on a theme park at Blackpool Pleasure Beach. The name sounds appropriate, I guess. What does the Guinness Book of World Records have to do for choosing who is going to go and determine this is the new world record? Well, there's a couple parts about this story that really strike me. First of all, the Guinness Book of World Records has become bizarrely specific that you would have a record for naked roller. Like I could see a record for roller coaster riding. I could see a record for maybe oldest person on a roller coaster, but who decided we need a record for most people nude on a roller coaster. That seems to me oddly specific. But the other thing is, Ben, did you hear when this is happening? This is in England on March the 2nd for an hour. What guy wants to be naked riding with cold winds blowing against his nude body on March the 2nd? Clearly an Englishman. Oh, man, you thought George Costanza had shrinkage. These poor guys are going to have to press just under their ribcage to push everything back out. It's going to be so tucked up in there. It's going to be awful. All right, that's story number one. Story number two uh, comes to us also from the United Kingdom, oddly enough. (laughs) A... uh, A woman, as they sometimes do, as certain women, I guess, sometimes do, guys too, obviously, uh, she bought a bunch of cocaine. As one does. As one does. She bought a bunch of coke. And um, when she got home, to her great dissatisfaction, she discovered that it was not cocaine at all. It was a bag of brown sugar. (laughs) (laughs) $260 she spent on this bag of... What she thought was high-potency drug, instead, good cereal topper. So what did she do? What do you think someone who's been upset by the fact that she's been sold a bad batch of not-cocaine does? Well, I imagine after snorting... The Better Business Bureau, by the way, does not do... (laughs) She called the police to report the fact that this guy had ripped her off. That I was trying to buy cocaine, and he sold me brown sugar. The police showed up and charged her. Yes. Uh, And story number three from Florida, not from the United Kingdom, involves a 41-year-old man from Zephyrils. Don't know where that is exactly. Uh, Now, see, let me clarify before we start this story. In no way, under no circumstance, would I ever be supportive, dismissive, joking, whatever, about domestic violence. Although this story is about domestic violence, and it is one that I think we can mock a little bit because a guy has been arrested for domestic battery because his girlfriend called the police to report that he had abused her. 
So far, nothing funny, nothing lighthearted about this. When the police arrived, he was in fact arrested and the what he had done to abuse his girlfriend was they had been arguing over the dining room table and he had chucked a cookie at her that bounced off her forehead. Oh, man. <laughs> and that is the extent when she reported it's a zero tolerance state. They have to charge him with domestic battery when, I guess, when uh, when the complaint is made. So because he tossed a cookie at her head and it bounced off her forehead, he is now facing a charge of domestic battery. Well, that's rather... Ex- I'm just trying to picture now. So say he gets some time. What are you in for? I threw a cookie. Now, when you see his picture, he has one, two, three, four, five, six or seven tattoos on his face. Probably probably he's done other stuff as well. I mean, I'm not judging a book entirely. It's by its cover. But according to this story, the report from the girlfriend was only that he had lobbed a cookie at her head. And that's got him now. And now again, I'm sure that looking at this dude, probably other stuff happened that no one knows about. But if throwing a cookie at someone is now called oh, anyway. So your your choices, Ben, for tonight for your story of the day are the guy who tosses a cookie, not tossed his cookies, but tossed a cookie. That would be different. He tossed a cookie at his girlfriend and got charged with domestic battery. Uh, the woman who complained to the police that the cocaine she purchased was actually brown sugar, or the nudist group who is going to ride a roller coaster for an hour in the blisteringly cold British March afternoon. Which one would be your story of the day today? Purely based off of. I was going to use another word, but the uh, boldness, the courage it takes to go outside in general in March in England, I'm going to have to go with the nudist roller coaster riders. They are going to be uncomfortable. And you know what the most bad part about this, which I guess would be worst, would be the proper word for that. The picture they're going to put in the book. Well, the picture they're going to put in the book. Do you really want to sit in that roller coaster after a nude person has been sitting on your seat for an hour. If it's still warm, then, I mean, it's a bonus. I, <laughs> I hope they hose it down or something at least. That, that you know, especially if you get concerned. Some people, you know, they don't have good bladder control under scary circumstances. That, that could, There could be lots of problems with this one. Anyway, there you go. Ben's story of the day. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring on Rick Zamperin of 900 CHML fame, which it is. It is fame. You, I, you, Rick Zamperin, when you go to malls and stores and stuff, people stop you on the street, don't they, most days, and say, you are Rick Zamperin. Well, not quite as often as, uh, you know, Batman's uh, real name, which, uh, you know, is, is two first names. So there's a hint for people who it are two first names. common and yes. hard, but don't. Not as famous as that guy. <laughs> uh, probably not as famous as Ted Michaels. Nope, nope. Another uh, two, two first name, almost. Yeah, well. <laughs> individual. <laughs> uh, Rick, uh, I wanted to have you on because we have been following, Rick, of course, uh, a guy who knows the world of sports as well as anybody, and a guy who's been doing sports in Hamilton for a long, long time, and that is why I wanted to have you on because we were watching yesterday with the NHL trade deadline, and Ottawa basically sold off whatever remaining pieces of its team it could possibly sell. I mean, it is like a a 1957 jalopy that had nothing left and they've now sold off the last three hubcaps of this car. I mean, it's a mess. And it is just a disaster of a team right now. Nobody seems to want to play there. The owner doesn't want to spend much money. He's promised that there's going to be some rebuild, some magical rebuild that five years from now, they're going to be a Stanley Cup contender, which I suppose could happen. 
but it's it's hard to visualize. I mean, Rick, do you have a better imagination than I do? Because I find it hard to visualize that. Uh, I you know it's it's almost like an avalanche of just poopness, if I can call it that. If you're Ooh. if you're a senator's fan, you're at the bottom of this hill, and this big avalanche of you know what is just hitting you smack dab in the face. That's how Sens fans feel right now because it's like he's painting a fecal Jackson Pollock. That's exactly <laughs> what he's doing. And if you're guys like if you're guys like Bobby Ryan. And Craig Anderson, you know, guys who are under contract and were not shipped out of town. I mean, there's, well, there's obviously reasons why neither of them were. A, nobody wants Bobby Ryan and, and paying him his salary because he's never on the ice. Uh, and B, uh, you know, the market for goalies is extremely tight because everyone who's in play opposition will have a number one and they're not going to pay Craig Anderson to sit on the bench. Um, but Sam's fans must just feel absolutely dejected the, the closest comparison that i can think of in you know, very different circumstances would be the montreal expos of the 90s where you know the team was moving a good comparison and yeah and and the ownership uh, had to say you know what we're not making any money we have to sell you know larry walker and and yada 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 uh you know Sens fans are kind of in that boat again i mean the, the franchise as far as we know right now is not moving they do have an arena deal that's kind of hanging in the balance um, but, but that was the comparison. They always used to call the Expos the yeah. AAA farm team of Major yeah. League Baseball. Exactly, because they would bring up, you know, no different than the Oakland Athletics from several years True. ago, where they bring up all these, uh, you know, young up-and-coming prospects, and then they got too expensive for Billy Bean's Moneyball uh, kind of antics in Oakland, and he would have to sell them off for, for another round of prospects. That's basically what's happening in Ottawa. You know, you get, you get rid of... Mark Stone is probably the marquee free agent this season. Uh, with apologies to Matt Tujain, who they also got rid of. Ryan Dezingle is out the door. And let's not forget, just last summer, uh, you know, Eric Carlson was shipped to, to San Jose. So this team has just been decimated uh, with star players going out the window. If they could have traded the stick boy, I'm sure they would have, but I don't know what they could have got back for him. But the reason I bring this whole thing up is not because I don't think there's a deep well of passion for Ottawa Senators uh players or team fandom in the city of Hamilton. In fact, I think if you could find five Senators fans who live in this city, uh, it might be a bit of a challenge. I, I know one. I know one as well. And I think that may be the same one. <laughs> I think there may only be one. <laughs> um, but the reason I bring this up is a broader question that is a painful question around here. And that is that we do know that 25, 26, 27, whatever it is years ago now, that Ottawa Senators franchise was the one that many people here and elsewhere thought was destined for Hamilton. That team, that franchise was supposed to come here. And honestly, had the Senators not offered an awful lot of hollow, empty, made-up promises that they knew they didn't have the money to fulfill, but made it up and won the franchise anyway, it probably would be in Hamilton, Rick. But my question is now, do you believe, honestly, that if that franchise had landed here and was playing at first Ontario Centre now, or whatever it would have been called if an NHL team was here, do you believe that that franchise, the Hamilton whatevers, would be dramatically more healthy than the Ottawa Senators are right now? I think the short answer is yes, and there's a number of reasons why. I'm not trying to be a homer or trying to be biased, but you look at the two cities, and you know Ottawa's a fantastic city, uh, you know, with with uh, the universities and obviously parliament and a lot of government workers there, 
but when you look at Hamilton and its geographical location to Toronto and to Buffalo, obviously the GTA, there is, you know, reason number one, millions of more people in the GTA and the Golden Horseshoe compared to uh, the Ottawa-Gatineau region. Uh, so that's number one. I think financially this team, you know, depending on some of the decisions that they would have made over the last, you know, almost three decades, I think would have been on much more solid financial ground in terms of the economic uh, wallets or, or the people's wallets that they could count upon. Uh, you know, Ottawa is speaking to a much smaller audience in terms of the paying public. That's just that's just a matter of uh, a matter of fact when you look at the population growth. Um, B reason number two is I think you know with with apologies to the Ottawa and Montreal quote unquote rivalry, which is I think just a made up rivalry because they're kind of close in geography. I think a Hamilton Toronto, even Hamilton Buffalo rivalry would probably be a really true rivalry. I mean, here's uh, uh, an expansion franchise in the early 90s that would be trying to eat the lunch of the Toronto uh, Maple Leafs and the Buffalo Sabres. And, uh, you know, a huge reason why that team never came to be is because of the veto power of the Leafs and, and to a lesser extent, the Sabres. Uh, and the NHL decided, hey, we can still make millions upon millions of dollars by granting a franchise to Ottawa and not, you know, piss off uh, the Maple Leafs. Uh, brain trust. So I think those are probably the two biggest reasons. Uh, number three, I think, you know, with the, the growth of Cops Coliseum in uh, the early to mid-80s for the uh, Canada Cup at the time, I think there would have been a lot more uh, there would have been a lot more people with deep pockets to invest a lot of money in that, in that facility to make it even better than it was when it did open. And, and at the time it opened, it was kind of already behind the times when, the, you know, the, the lights came on. So, you know, three primary reasons why this team, I think, would have been more successful in Hamilton. There is another one, I suppose, that you could throw in there as well, which is that uh, Ron Joyce was supposed to be part of that right. or the big part of that ownership group. And Ron yeah. Joyce was certainly a guy who um, his pockets are deep, were deep, uh, you know. And so th- he was a guy who... If there had been problems with the finances, you would have expected probably could have, if he was so inclined, could have weathered those storms. Here's the, not to be an anti-homer, the flip side of this that I've always wondered about is nowadays the NHL has a salary cap, which would be a perfect thing for a team like Hamilton because you are in the shadow of Toronto. You don't want to get swallowed up by the Maple Leafs. So a salary cap works for a a market like Hamilton or a Buffalo now. I'm not sure, though, that not long after the team came here, if we would not have been in trouble. In today, if you could have planted the team here today, I think for all the reasons you said, I think this thing could probably work. I'm just not sure that it still would have been here. I think there were some years in there where it could have been pretty darn bleak for this area. And that's one of the fascinating parts about this you know, debate is uh, we all remember uh, the Quebec Nordique, uh, certainly, uh, you know, Calgary and Edmonton had their issues. Winnipeg had to leave town because, you know, the Canadian dollar really took a beating. And all in the same, all in the same time frame. Exactly. Um, however, uh, you know, Ottawa comes in to be and they are able to survive somehow, uh, in what I think is a much smaller market than Hamilton. But, you know, I, I understand what you're, what you're saying in terms of, you know, financial viability, uh, how viable would this Hamilton, whatchamacallits be? Uh, the fact of the matter is, you know, if you're, if you're granting an expansion franchise, and this, I think, was 92 in Ottawa, you know, uh, first hit the ice, uh, I think the NHL will be extremely reluctant uh, to move that franchise or shut it down. I know they did it in the past, uh, certainly, you know, in the expansion era and when teams were coming and going, 
uh, uh, you know, they were they were eager to to flip the switch if things weren't working. But I think with uh, a Ron Joyce ownership group, uh, I think financially they would have been okay to weather the storm. Um, a different story on the ice. Who knows what kind of team it was? You know, if if it was a competitive team, at least in the first you know decade or so. Uh, who knows how the finances would be, uh, you know, compared to what Ottawa has been able to accomplish. But, you know, when you had the same expansion draft, and let's just say the Ottawa Senators of 92, which is a horrible team, was supplanted and, and put in Hamilton. I mean, uh, I think the fans would have stuck it out because, uh, you know, they're, they're thirsty for NHL action, as we saw, you know, just a few short uh, years ago with Jim Balsillie and his efforts to try and get a team here. I think the appetite is there and has been there and, and would be there if, uh, you know, magically someday that comes to be, although I don't think it's going to happen. But I think it, I, I, either way, I think it would have been successful here in Hamilton. Jim Balsillie is another interesting name because around the time, because don't forget, he tried, I think it, it was three teams. He tried to get the Penguins first and then he yep. tried to get the, the uh, Predators. Yep. And then it was the Arizona, at the time, the Phoenix Coyotes. Right. What's really interesting about that is a lot of people said, oh, there's the White Knight. There's the guy that would have made it work. It was not long after he had that lawsuit to try and get the Coyotes here that Blackberry took a huge tumble, and you wonder if he had won and won that court case, and if he had been the owner that moved the team into Hamilton and then the finances went a little bit sour, what would have happened? Like, there's, there's so, For people who say that if we had had a team once upon a time, it would have been clear sailing, I think there's so many road bumps along the way that makes you at least wonder where we'd be today. I, I would have loved to see, you know, just, just in terms of, you know, because Gary Bettman and Jim Balsley absolutely detest each other, but if Balsley would have gotten the Coyotes or the Predators or, or the Penguins, whatever the case is, and brought them to Hamilton. And then knowing what we know about Blackberry and what happened there, I would have just loved to have seen the conversation between him and Bettman and Bettman saying, I told you so. That would have been very interesting. I don't know that the exact words would have been, I told you so. (laughs) No. (laughs) There may have been a few extras thrown in there, uh, (laughs) standing behind a wall of lawyers while he said it. It is is a really interesting one. Now, one other thing about this. If Hamilton, understanding how the economy of this city has gone in the last 25, 30 years, and the ups and downs of this place, and we're, you know, we're revitalizing ourselves now, but there's been some tough times along the way. If Hamilton had got an NHL team, would we still have the Thai Cats? Because you, I have to wonder if we had an NHL team. There's only so much pie to go around to be sliced into so many pieces with disposable income and sports money for people to spend. And NHL tickets are not cheap. And I wonder if the tie, if people would have still been buying Thai Cat tickets if that team would have survived. Very good question. Because now you have 41 home dates for this NHL franchise. Uh, the tickets are a lot more money. You're obviously stuffing in, uh, well, relatively this, the same amount of people, about 19, 20,000, uh, somewhere in there, although Cops Coliseum at the time would have been a heck of a lot less. But yeah, you're asking those same, uh, roughly the same group of fans to make a decision. You know, am I going to sock some money into season's tickets or some kind of flex packs with this NHL franchise, or am I going to continue to support the Ticats? So it would have been a lot of fans, I think, uh, especially off the get-go, to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to check out this NHL team, and that's where my uh, you know, discretionary income is going to go, and then maybe I'll you know, loop around with the Ticats, go to a Labor game. Uh, I think there's no doubt the Ticats would have been impacted. Whether or not they would have been defunct, 
That would have been a, a great question, especially in 2003 when the franchise was already bankrupt. Well, that's the, the thing. Came in the same day. Because around the time that this NHL team might have come here was right around the time that the Ticats and the CFL were at their lowest ebb, when yeah, they were exactly. most desperate. And I look at this and I think I... I I would not bet money if you could go back in time and do the whole thing over again that the Ticats would have necessarily survived that because when they had the the rally to, to save the cats and all the rest of it, I don't know that the disposable income exists in the city at that time right. to get it out of people or corporations, quite frankly, because how many companies in the city would have invested then in the NHL and would not have had the money to go towards the Ticats? I, it, it's very realistic. It's a very realistic possibility, I think. Yeah, great point. And how many how many companies, especially manufacturing firms, which Hamilton had, you know, a plethora of, went belly up because of you know what was happening in the economy. So, wow, what a, what a discussion that would have been at the time if that uh, if that occurred. Uh, let's change tack just a tiny bit, although staying with hockey, because I I looked up some numbers today. I've heard people talking about this. And I didn't really know what the truth was and where the real numbers lay. And I wanted to look this up for myself. And so I went and looked on the NHL's website under ice time for players and for this year, guys who are how much ice time they're actually getting. And I took out all the defensemen because defensemen generally, the good defensemen anyway, get a lot more ice time because there's less skating. So you can, the, the top defensemen are playing 25, 26, 30 minutes a game. So I took all the defensemen out among forwards. Mitch Marner, who is having an excellent year, is 34th among forwards in the NHL, which is, I I thought, low for Mitch Marner because of the kind of season he's having, but okay. John Tavares on the Leafs is 51st as far as ice time. Austin Matthews, who you just signed to, what was it, 11 and a half, 12 and a half, whatever it was, million dollar contract. 80th, 8-0, 80th among forwards in the NHL. Rick, how... I don't understand this. I, I really don't understand this. It seems as though you've got a team that, yes, they've shown they can turn it on and go crazy when they get behind, especially recently. If you've got John Tavares and Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews, three of the best forwards in the league, why are you not play, playing them more? Fantastic question. Uh, Paul Tipple and I, both diehard Leafs fans, ask each other this question almost on a weekly basis. Uh, and, and when you take that number 80, we know that there's 31 teams in the National Hockey League. So on average, there are two forwards on every team in the league that are getting more ice time than Austin Matthews. Uh, that just simply can't happen. I mean, this is one of the top young up-and-coming superstars uh, who is electric whenever he has the puck, and even sometimes when he doesn't have it, uh, who I think, as we all know about the public or not so public feud he's had over the last you know year and a half with Mike Babcock regarding ice time you would think that he at least has earned uh, that increase in ice time and I know he's technically not on the top line if you will because Tavares and Marner and Zach Hyman are but still when you have a forward of that magnitude it does get you know a ton of power play time as well as do the other two uh, you have to wonder, you know, what is going on here and you, you also have to wonder you know what if he was averaging 18, 19, 20 minutes a game, how many more points or how many more goals he would score at this point and how many more games this team would win. So, you know, for a guy who is only 21, you would you would think that Babcock wants to ride his you well, know, that's the thing. horses. He's that's, not 38, right? If he was 38 exactly. years old, you say, okay, we got to keep him fresh for the playoffs and, and you know, we don't want to over you. But he's barely, barely ahead of um, Marlowe. 
Patrick yep. Marlowe, who is like 72 years old. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and the thing is, even if you say, okay, well, you know, I don't want to give him all these extra shifts because we got to get uh, Nazem Kadri on the ice because he's a third line center. You've already got Tavares and we've got to get this guy and that guy. That's fine. Why would you not then occasionally throw him on the wing with Tavares or with Marner? Load up for a line here or there. Give, I just, look, I'm not Mike Babcock. I'm not making 8 million bucks a year to coach an NHL team, but it, I don't think that it, I just don't think it makes sense to have a guy this good getting this much money sitting for this long. It just doesn't make sense. I'm in complete agreement. And, you know, the the easiest thing that you can do, uh, my my Babcock could do, is say, hey, Austin, you're going to double shift, uh, you know, this period or next, you know, few shifts, you're going to be on the fourth line with, you know, these two other guys. And, you know, you boost your ice time there, you get them on the ice, maybe against the other team's fourth line. It's the easiest thing to do. Uh, I'm not sure why Babs doesn't do it. Watching the Montreal game on Saturday night, I, it just, and this is where this idea to look this up really struck me because it seemed as though the fourth line was on the ice as much as Matthew's line was. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you're down at that point. Now they came back and they won. And so, you know, maybe you look at that and you say, okay, um, coach knows what he's doing and you don't. So be quiet. But you're down 3 1, 3 nothing at one point, and you're playing your fourth line as much as your superstar player. And I just, I, I I mean, you look at the other guys. They don't do this now. Edmonton, again, bad example. Edmonton stinks. And so maybe Connor McDavid playing all that amount of time is the wrong thing there. Maybe maybe I'm arguing against myself right here, but boy, it just seems like other teams that have superstars, they play them. Yeah, and you know what? I don't, I don't recall during Babcock's Detroit days where guys like uh, um, uh, Pavel Datsuk or Henrik Zetterberg, you know, all their marquee guys would be playing, you know, 16 minutes a game. They were always around you know, 19, 20, 21 minutes, because they were the star players. And, you know, you can make the case back then that you could roll four lines. But, uh, you know, it, it is definitely a head scratcher. The other, the last point, i got to let you go. The other point, though, is someone suggested today, well, you know what, maybe he's saving them for the playoffs. He's keeping them fresh. And when they get to the playoffs, you will see this change. You'll see more time. And then you realize, well, last year it didn't change in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Last year, And so uh, assuming you're going to end up playing Boston in the first round because that seems to be the Leafs' fate forever now. They will until the league stops playing in 3,962 that they'll play Boston in the first round. Boston has one amazing line that is great offensively and great defensively. Why would you not put him on more often and Tavares on more often and put them together at times, whatever else, to screw with Boston's line-matching things? It just like it, there are so many reasons, but they didn't do it last year. I anyway, eightieth, eightieth overall for Austin Matthews. Uh, he's only playing four minutes a game more than Connor Brown, and if that it's makes crazy. sense to someone, then okay. It's that crazy. that guy's making eight million bucks a year, I guess. Who it makes <laughs> sense to. So, uh, Rick Zamperin, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this tonight. You got it anytime. That is uh, that's a head scratcher for me. You you may you may have a good answer for it. If you've got a good explanation, and if Mike Babcock is listening, I'm happy to have him on. If Mike is listening, call in. I'd love to talk to you about this. But it is, to me, just a bit of an oddity that your best player is playing that little, relatively speaking. That so many other players in the NHL are getting more ice time. It's like having... I don't know. I don't know what the example is. It's like having great china and you never serve your dinner on it. Well, we got to keep it in the closet. Keep it fresh. Keep it clean. Well, why? Why do you have it then? Use it. 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.